Boom Mike Productions is in partnership with RPS to present the work of Jack Latham and his Sugar Paper Theories project. This podcast presents the testimonies of Gisli Gudjonsson, Erla Badottier, Dylan Howitt, as well as the curator Mark Rawlings and Jack Latham himself, as they recall the events of the infamous Goodmunder case. The Goodmunder case, also known as the Reykjavik Confessions, is a case concerning the disappearances of Goodmunder and Gefinur Ernesson in 1974 in Iceland. Six people were convicted of their alleged murders on the basis of confessions acquired by false memories. In later years, most Icelanders believe the six were wrongfully convicted. Jack Latham's Sugar Paper Theories project attempts to document and offer different perspectives on chilling events of the Goodmunder case. Throughout the book, you will find detailed photographs and newspaper articles that will leave you with a different insight and understanding into what really happened. My name is Emily Tetris. And my name is Charlie Comrie, and this is a Boom Mike production in association with RPS. This is the Sugar Paper Theories podcast, and this is episode one with Jack Latham. Hi, can you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Jack Latham, and I'm a photographer based in Bristol. The first question is, what intrigued you about this story, and why did you develop it into a project? So, when I first became aware of the case, uh, it was in 2014. I had just finished my first major project called The Pink Flamingo, which kind of retraced the Oregon Trail in America. And that later became a book, and I became quite frustrated with the fact that narratives behind the stories weren't necessarily that clear to the audience. And so I decided before I made another body of work, I would kind of look at storytelling and how, how different forms of storytelling. So one of the places that I started at was how people tell stories to children um, as a vessel of education. So... I became aware of Icelandic sagas, which are these kind of really haunting horror stories that they tell kids in Iceland. And but, but beneath the narratives, there's a kind of an important lesson. So the most famous one being about Huldafolk, which is this kind of elf in Iceland. Um, and if you go out at night during a blizzard, the elves will grab you by the ankles and pull you beneath the lava field. And that was a kind of a lesson to say, don't go outside when it's cold and, and a blizzard. So when I was, that kind of led me on to researching the Holder folk and kind of Icelandic mythologies. And I stumbled upon a forum where it was suggested that maybe Gaifna Einarsson, one of the people from the case, was taken by these elves. Um, and that was, the, that was my first in with the case, I'd say. And so I became aware of this gentleman called Goodmunder and I started learning more about the case. And then um, the rest is history then. And I kind of abandoned the whole Holder folk but I kind of, yeah, trying to figure out ways of telling stories was very much the thing that led me to this case, which is interesting because the case is so central on people being told a story by police and then believing it. So storytelling and as a, as a practice and as a theme within the work are very much interlinked. So were you originally looking at doing a project on the Icelandic stories? Yes, I mean, very much so. I think... The, you know, there's that mythology that is, I think, quite enchanting for people that, you know, aren't, you know, there's the other. So, um, yeah, it was very much kind of a gateway into into Iceland. Um, but very quickly, I kind of realized that this case, there was something quite magical about the thought of, of believing something that isn't real. 
um, such as you committing murder when you haven't. And that, that kind of strangeness is something that I think um, was, yeah, was, was almost the petrol of the car of, of this project. So have you like always been interested in cases like this or was it something that you started looking at once you saw yeah I, so this is the only project I've ever made on a on a crime case um my previous work you could attribute it more to the kind of road trip movie and this one would be a true crime movie and my most current one I would say would be a kind of a, th- a thriller kind of an eyes wide shut elite um kind of project so no I, th- I I'm drawn to subjects where the that almost focus on different aspects of storytelling. So my most recent work looks at how conspiracy theories uh, develop and how by removing things out of context and placing them in a new context, like conspiracy theorists do, um, that can alter our understanding of a situation. And with this case, it's how being told a narrative with such confidence when you as a viewer are in a situation of vulnerability, you end up believing narratives that maybe aren't necessarily true. And I'll also say that when I started making this work in 2014, words like fake news, alternative facts, um, weren't part of our vernacular. And so there's been this kind of catching up, I think, where the work now you can kind of look at this conditioning of these six people and the narratives that they were fed by the police as a form of kind of propaganda or, or coercion. I think that that's something that's quite applicable to media as a, as a whole, not necessarily something as specific as this case. So I tried to make work that, while it focuses on a small case, or sorry, a big case in a small country, the ramifications are, are quite global, I think. How did this case as a whole and looking into it affect your photography? Um, so this is the first time I've ever used an archive when making work. And, you know, there's a lot of photographic kind of tricks that, that you pick up along the way and I think one of the things that are almost done to death in photography is re-photographing archives, going to the same place and photographing it again. And I, I did do that a couple of times within this work, but I felt it was important to use those images as a kind of a starting point and respond to them, but not necessarily go out to recreate them. So that was something that was quite new. A lot of my work is kind of I use a structure which I tend to follow, whether that's the Oregon Trail in America, Iceland, this crime case, I kind of followed the court's account of what happened and that was the kind of chronology of me making work. Um, so there is a lineage, the the intersection, the, um, try to think of the correct way of putting this, including black and white images with color images was quite a radical thing for me at the time. Um, and then also incorporating my research, which up until that point I had never done. So my practice is very much research-based, and then I'll build up a structure of a sort of, I know what I'm doing. And then I allow myself, when making work, I kind of know where the parameters are of the project. So I, I kind of give myself some space to respond to things that I see, but by the time I'm in Iceland or in America, I know what it is that I'm photographing. Does When you get to a location of a shoot, do you find that you're perceptions of what you wanted the project to be change quite quickly uh so i think when you make work at times and and you take it back and you start editing you realize that you were drawn to subjects that you weren't necessarily aware of why you were initially interested in them and that's all kind of a, a dialogue with your subconscious and um 
that is something I find quite fascinating in the act of photography and, and, and I guess people that make things is sometimes we make things without understanding the reasons why and it's only after editing and looking back at the journey kind of the path that you've made by walking that you realize what you've done but to say that it was all pre-planned or I think I think I think that's a kind of a, a fallacy branching on from the whole subconscious thing what was it actually like to be in Iceland where like everything went down and it made such a big impact on that country I mean it's very it's a very uh, it's a very photographable place Iceland and I think there is this kind of history this stain on Icelandic judicial systems history with this case and it's kind of an open taboo to talk about it really because you know, a nation of 300,000 people really turned their backs on six innocent people when they needed them the most. And so there's a kind of a national guilt there. When I was making the work, to most people's surprise, everyone was really friendly and forthcoming to the point that I, could, I knocked one day on the door of a prison and they let me go in and photograph the prison yard. And I think that's largely due to the fact that I think that Icelanders identify their part in the suffering of innocent people. And there is a kind of a... It, I think it falls on the mantle of Icelandic people's shoulders, right? That they need to face this history in order to reconcile with it. And um, that's certainly been the case with this book and the documentary that's also come out. That it's kind of... There's, an, there's a global audience now with this case... And I think there's more pressure than ever for the Icelandic government to to come to terms with what happened and to, to provide justice for all six. So it's, um yeah, photographing in Iceland was kind of the same as photographing everywhere else, except for as a photographer, you just feel the kind of the responsibility of the story that you're telling and to do it justice. Yeah. What was the prison like? It was like, um yeah, it was a... Icelandic prisons aren't very populated. Uh, that's largely due to the country. Um, and it's typically, they call them uh, day men. They're, so people that try to sneak into Iceland when they're going somewhere else, normally America, okay. and they get caught and they get held for 24 hours and they get sent back. Um, and yeah, the, I mean, the prison yard, it was just, a, it was kind of a, one of the things about prisons that they tend to be the same wherever they are. Yeah. But the, but the, the prison officers, at least, were very, very opening. Whereas in the UK, whenever I've tried to get into a prison, um, by legal means, uh, they yeah, I always get, I always get denied because of health and safety or you know paperwork. Yeah, we saw some photos actually of an Icelandic prison, and it looked really nice. It looked like really mm. comfortable. It didn't look like a normal prison. It looked like somewhere you'd go on holiday or something. Just like yeah, the <laughs> scan the Scandinavians are quite good at um, progressive forms of reincarceration uh, so I think I think it's Norway that have a kind of an open prison where they have plants and televisions and, and actually statistically it reduces the reoffending rate interestingly is, is if you treat prisoners um, with respect as opposed to you know, the object of, of their crime I, uh, so halfway through the project uh, I was awarded something with uh, the Bartol Photo Book Award which gave me £20,000 to make a book out of the out of the project and that had a deadline attached to it and the work was very much half developed at that point and so I had four and a half months to finish the project of something which I was planning on working on for the next three years 
So that was probably the most kind of stressful time of my career so far is finding a way to finance that because that 20,000 goes to the book, doesn't go to the project. But then also trying to fast track my my concept in a way because I'm quite a slow worker and I like to spend my time understanding something before I even attempt to photograph it. So that that was a that was I'd say probably the most difficult part is to kind of come to terms with a deadline. Was it originally going to be a photo book or was that developed as the project went? Yeah, I think it was always going to be a photo book. Um I didn't know, you know, you make work and some projects lend themselves better to exhibitions than others, but I think with this from the day that I started taking pictures, the idea of the genre of Nordic 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 noir, kind of in true crime, it's quite book and episodic. I think that that lends itself better than an exhibition. So when we, especially when we did the exhibition here, as opposed to just recreating the book and putting it on the wall, we reimagined it as a as a as its own entity. So not to kind of just reference the book and because you end up having a half baked exhibition or a half baked book. So every time, in every different context it's seen, whether that's during a lecture, on my website, um, at an exhibition or in a book, everyone is kind of curated depending on the context in which it's seen. Um, yeah. What's, what sort of responsibility is there to represent the people who may or may not have been guilty in the case? So I'm not a photojournalist by any stretch of the imagination, but my work does have its roots in documentary. And so when I started making this work... I'm a belief of that you should include the people that you're telling the story about to your stories. And so I became very close with Etla Bolodotier, who's the, the, the one woman central to the case, and Guthi and Scarperson, who diary entries feature throughout the work. But especially when there's photography that features people suffering, I question the, the need for personifying that suffering with a portrait of those people. And so for me, it was much more poetic, for example, to photograph Etla's pet goldfish, something that's synonymous with having bad memory and that's encapsulated within a kind of a tank as a representation of her more so than a, a portrait of her would ever do. And also, you know, and, and with Gudion, I photographed his churches, which evoke... I would imagine, well, intentionally, but they they evoke images of confession and purity, and in his case, isolation. So, I think there's smarter ways of representing people. The thing with memory distress syndrome is that this isn't just something that's ever happened just in Iceland. It's incredibly common in terms of coercion and interrogation. And so, also by not including portraits of the people, it makes people wonder what they look like, and then. The alarming thing is that given the right set of circumstances, anyone can be the victim of memory distress syndrome. So those people could look like anybody. So yeah, that was why I didn't include them. But their voices, and in, in the new edition of the book, in 2018, a year after we showed in Iceland, the case got reopened and the five men were acquitted. But Etla's charge is of perjury. So her charge is still against her name. But until everybody is acquitted for this kind of fictional murder um there's not true justice because it's justice for all not just for some so when we were thinking of reprinting the book we thought you know it would make a lot of sense if we gave etla a space just to have her own words unedited about her lived experience because 
so often by media, in particular Icelandic media, she has been kind of thingified and objectified by the gaze of a nation. And, you know, it's important to remember there's more people that live in Bristol than there are in the country of Iceland. And so the idea of what your neighbour's up to in Iceland, or that's Etla Bolodotia, she's the person that was central to that murder, it affects you not just your generation, but your kids' generation and their kids' generation. And the thing is with, that's happened since 2011 and since the case has been reopened, that the conversation is no longer that's the people central to the case, but it's their neighbours trying to justify their behaviour. So the conversation is, has shifts, shifted slightly where Etler is receiving a lot of comments. Oh, well, you know, I never believed the case. But it, it's enough to drive you kind of, you know, a little bit kind of anxious and paranoid when, when you know that an entire country knows your face. And an entire country is, yeah, the size of a, a, a large city here in the UK. And what, what personally do you think was your best moment during the whole project? Um, finishing it, I suppose. It's a very emotionally engaging thing to go through. And, you know, I, I, I subjected myself to it. But it's... Um, I believe in that it's the responsibility of the storyteller to also should... Uh, it's the responsibility of the person telling the life story of someone else to become part of that person's life should they want it. And, you know, to this day, I speak to Etler every week. I was with Gisli Gudjonsson yesterday in London. It's very much this case has become an extension of my family and, and, the, and I'm very close to the inner mechanics of it all. But it does have its toll. And it's, you know, I'm trying to think of this as a, an exercise in photography and, you know, there's all of these kind of dilemmas that you face. But I'm very proud in the way that Gisli and I made this book. Um, and the exhibition and uh, yeah so I, I would say that the, the, my best moment is the the day that it was done because I didn't have to necessarily engage with it as a photography project anymore it was just something that I have made yeah so what was it like when you actually first met them all was it so two of them are dead so there's but there's um four the four remaining yeah it was tense and it was kind of half having to explain what I'm trying to do Etla, when I first met her, um, she I told her I was a photographer and I was doing this project on the case. So when I turned up, she had kind of got herself ready to be photographed. And very quickly, she realized I was a very different type of photographer. So I kind of pushed her aside and photographed her goldfish instead. So kind of something she thought was hilarious. Um, but there is this kind of, yeah, there is this kind of, when people entrust their story to you, you have a responsibility of, of doing it right. So I think that was the thing that made it most tense. But very quickly, we we were all on the same page. And actually, before the book went to press, my publishers flew out with myself and Gisley, and we organised the dinner. So it was the first time they've all been together since the case. And we showed them all the PDF and, and the book dummy and made sure everyone's happy the way that they were represented. And then the book went to press the next day. So it's kind of very much in, involving them in, in the process of how they've been de- depicted in media because historically they've been disenfranchised and completely muted by, by media. How long did it take you to build up a relationship with the people involved with the case? Um, 
Was, uh, was all your sort of time concentrated or was your initial interest in one specific person or was it sort of to get to know no I I mean again Iceland's so small that it's a, you talk to one person and three more people have heard about you before you've met them so very quickly a small community gathered because I had, was working with Gisli Gudjonsson who's the expert witness of the case it was kind of yeah it, w- it was a lot easier than if I was a complete outsider um, but I'd say my strongest relationship is with Adler um yeah and that that developed relatively quickly because i think that she could see that my intentions were good and so what's the actual meaning behind the name so there's a photo um of a desk and on the wall there's a kind of a, a an illustration and the desk is owned by a gentleman called sid who in the book is referred to as conspiracy theorist number one and sid is a childhood friend of Atlas and Saivas, the t- two of the people central to the case. And they, uh, when they went into jail, he managed to acquire the court's account of what had happened. And he has spent pretty much every day since pouring through these documents, which are on show, um, trying to find out what happened and simplify it. And so he's been drawing these timeline of events, which you can see on yellow sugar paper, um, and in a way, I, I kind of looked at these kind of illustrations as it's his, his theory of what happened. And they're drawn on sugar paper, so it was his sugar paper theory. And in a way, because I've curated and photographed eclectically about the case, and I've put them in a sequence also, a timeline, you could say, the book in itself is my sugar paper theory. So both of them together would be sugar paper theories. I try not to look at too much photography because I'm a bit of a sponge of things that I like and it kind of, I'll photograph things and I'll go, I really like that. And then I'll realize, oh my God, that's because it's that other photographer. So in the past five, six years, I listen to a lot of music when I'm researching and when I'm making work. So when I was in in Iceland, I listened to a lot of Nils Fram, he's a German composer and uh, his album Spaces very much became the kind of audio that was playing consistently in the background with all of the photos being taken. So I can't, I can't listen to that album now without being transported back to Iceland. But there was a, an emotion and that it evoked that was the thing that I was trying to photograph. So, yeah. What's, what's your sort of full opinion of the case? Do you think it was... How do you think it was handled and... Um, from what you've seen and from I well I mean it's tricky to say because I'm not I wasn't around in the 70s so I can only go by secondhand information I will say that I don't think that the investigators went into this case trying to implant memories in innocent people and they were trying to do the best but Iceland in the 1970s was completely ill-equipped to deal with a, a, an alleged double homicide um what I can say about the way that the government is currently treating this case is it's absolutely despicable. Um, the government, like a hot potato, keeps throwing this case to the next government and the next government, and lives are continuing to be affected by it. And it's, I think it's an incredible injustice. And I feel very frustrated at times that the Icelandic, uh, Icelandic society isn't more up in arms about this case than they should be. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my opinion of the case. 
How did the initial imagery that was taken during the 70s affect your photography that you produced for this book? Well, in a weird way, they were both... Both the archive imagery and my imagery were made with the same purpose, and that was to illustrate a fictional crime. And so these photos that were made by uh, the police photographer kind of recreate very beautifully an alleged murder and there's photographs of Christian Vida strangling an officer um, him sta- stood in front of a Volkswagen Beetle and they're very kind of cinematic shots and they were used as the court as evidence so as a starting point I find the notion of evidence photography very interesting a photograph being of course something that isn't isn't real that's a very postmodernist view I have. But when I was making work, I'm making work in response to rumours. And the way that the police led their investigation is that they were investigating and starting narratives in response to rumours. And so my photographs are almost a kind of a, the red herring in all of this. At times they're very factual and I'm, I'm photographing key areas of the case. Other times I'm photographing goldfish or churches that aren't related to the case, but kind of are. Um, and so that the, it was that conversation between both of our processes that I, I thought was quite interesting. Do you think it's important to have that sort of broad aspect of photography? So like you said, you had some shots of people involved in the case and some, for example, the church or the goldfish. Do you mm. think it's important to have that sort of full spectrum to understand? Well, so project? I would say that, so if, especially flicking through the book, um, it's uh, as an act of pu- punctuation Gisley's text is kind of this beat that goes throughout the book and Gisley who is the founder of memory distress syndrome is responsible for solving the Guildford 4 and the Birmingham 6 cases here in the UK one of the most revered uh, forensic psychologists in the world CBE Gisley Guthinson, um has written this text and it's because he's a man of science they're very factual and they have to be factual because they're scientific I'm working with something that's subjective and intangible and making things in response. And so something happens when you place text like that next to images like mine, where you get put into this gray area of my images almost gain authority that perhaps they shouldn't have. Of course, I'm photographing in 2014 to 2016. I'm not photographing the 1970s. So this idea of truth, you know, and facts um, kind of, emerges I think and um, so yeah I mean for the the, ulti- the ultimate goal of the book was to confuse the audience into what is relevant and what isn't relevant and I think I think to a large degree we, we were successful in that because some of my photographs are some of them aren't also playing on the motif of crime documentaries the red herring is something that's you know constantly used the, the, the bait and switch so there are photos in there that are completely irrelevant but are held within the same kind of authority as Gisley's text or the archive photos or the diaries. And so that's the kind of a dilemma that you as an audience member have to kind of reconcile with is do you believe the narrative that I'm telling you? Because in a strange way, you as an audience member are in the same situation that those six people were in when the police officers were telling them that they were central to the murder. So do you have like a favourite piece from your book or no? Oh. Um, 
Is there one that particularly stood out to you and that you yeah. remember? Uh, as in a photograph? Um, um, I mean, uh, this new edition, I think Atlas Forward is one of the most beautiful things. In a, in a really tragic way, it's beautiful. Um, and I'm so glad that we did that because when I made the book in 2016, everyone was guilty. And now because of the reopening, we've had to pivot it and the case is kind of the dynamic of it has all changed and now it's all on Etla. She's almost being made as, as a scapegoat. I mean, this is someone that has been historically disenfranchised by the Icelandic government and has been voiceless in Icelandic media. So to give her her own space to talk about it, I think is probably my favourite piece of the, of the whole work. Perfect. Cool. That's everything. Grand. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This podcast was written by Emily Tetris, Charlie Comrie, Paige Brimble and Holly Holder. Music was by Paige Brimble. Recorded by Charlie Comrie, Emily Tetris. A special thanks to Jack Latham and the Royal Photographic Society. To find out more about the case, make sure you look out for episode two with Dylan Howitt, director of Out of Thin Air.